trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, the fact that you're listening to this program leads me to a couple of assumptions about you. Now, these are not judgments, mind you. They're just assumptions. I'm guessing that at some level, you are aware that what's going on around us is not okay. Right? The direction the world is heading, the growing chaos, <laughs> the instability. It's its not exactly the way things were supposed to be. And you and I shouldn't just be sitting back nodding our heads thoughtfully. Okay, well, whatever, you know. At least we got people in charge to tell us what to do. And if that's the case, I welcome you to this program where we revel in wrong think. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm here to tell you what to think. It doesn't mean that I'm here to give you your marching orders. And this is what I need you to chant in unison with me. I'm just trying to encourage you to question everything and to think as clearly and independently as you possibly can about what's going on around us. And I have so many great resources to draw upon that are are helping to shine light on what's happening, what matters in the world versus what doesn't. I'm so grateful for this. Also, I have some great sponsors who make this possible. If you'd like to visit my website, it's thebrianhydeshow.com. My sponsors include hslammo.com monticellocollege.org, lifesavingfood.com, and garagedoorproservices.com. And I want to start with something that, this is going to seem really simple, maybe even a little bit counterintuitive, but I don't know about you, sometimes I need a little reminder that, uh, you know, the fixes that we're looking for don't have to be great big top-down, you know, biblical proportion miracles in order to really make a difference. Case in point. Got a great uh, point of view here from Isaac Morehouse. He's one of the founders of Praxis. He's also one of my favorite thinkers. I just, I love Isaac's positivity and I love his insights. And this is an observation he made that, uh, that just rang all the right bells with me. He says, I try to make an effort to be in awe every day. He says, if my sense of wonder gets dulled, so does everything else. Now, what exactly can you do to bring about that sense of awe? Well, here's what he says. Isaac Moore says, Awe can come from staring at a spider web on a front porch and considering how it was made overnight by a creature so small. How can that much material be processed in that body? What inputs are needed? It's mind-boggling. He says, Awe can come from a tweet about the age of the Appalachian Mountains. Awe can come from contemplation of the countless strangers who mostly unknowingly coordinated their actions to bring this laptop to me, guided by the profit and loss signals in a market economy. That really is pretty amazing, by the way. Isaac Morehouse says, it doesn't matter what it is or where it comes from, getting myself into a place of genuine awe at least once a day is one of the healthiest practices I've found. I think he's right. And in fact, I try to work on this myself. Now, look, I mean, you may say, well, Brian, this is just an avoidance tactic. And what you're really trying to do is just, you know, you're trying to uh, avoid the things that you don't wish to acknowledge. And trust me, there's a lot of stuff out there that I'm not really keen to acknowledge. But no, this isn't trying to ignore what bothers me so much as trying to remember that there are still a lot of great things around us. In fact, one of the things that I find most inspiring of awe 
is when I start looking, I mean, actively looking around to, to see and recognize the goodness, the incredible creativity and innovation in the people around me. And it's there. But here's the kicker. You have to be looking for it in order to recognize it. And that's not very easy. I mean, look, people who turn on the news thinking, well, I'm going to find out everything that's happening in the world today. You know what you typically find out? You find out the very worst things that humanity is doing to one another. And, and that's about it. We, we hear about the horrific things. We hear about the stupid things. Very seldom do we hear about the good things. So in, in interest of, you know, just another tool for your tool chest of how to cope with all the growing chaos and all the, all the instability that is, is the hallmark of the time that we live in, the simple solution is find time to be in awe every day. See, for me, it's the simple stuff. When I see a flock of quail, you know, running around in my backyard or chasing each other around or flying around in my backyard, I, I love that. I love to hear them call. And, and you know, it's a simple thing. And it, it, does it change anything in the world? No. But it helps me remember that there are some truly amazing things around me. A beautiful sunset, a remarkable lightning storm coming in. It's all there. But we have a choice as to, you know, where our focus is going to go. Don't forget to occasionally look for the good stuff because it's there. And the beauty of this world is not just for the rich and the well-connected. It's for all of us if we remember to access it. All right, so there you go. That's that's your helpful hint for today. No charge. So, you know, give your money back if that's what you need for whatever you paid for it. All right, you ready to dive into some uh, some serious topics here? This one is going to raise a little bit of ire. But I have to ask this question. Does your vote really make a difference? Now, before you answer that question, I'd like you to take a look at Thomas L. Knapp's latest article, which is titled, Should You Even Vote? Not Necessarily. Now, listen to what he has to say before you, you know, come down on one side or the other here. He says, as I write this, we're 47 days away from the November 8th general election. Voters will elect candidates to all 435 U.S. House seats, 35 U.S. Senate seats, and other offices that vary from state to state. As close as that sounds, in some places it's even closer. Early voting begins 46 days before Election Day in Minnesota and South Dakota, 45 days early in Vermont, Virginia, and Wyoming. 40 days early in Illinois and Michigan with shorter windows in most states. So Thomas Knapp says it's time to start making some decisions, not just on which candidates to vote for, but on whether to vote at all. Now, the usual answer to the question, should we vote, is of course. Some consider it a civic duty. They even suggest making it mandatory. It's how the system works. If you don't vote, you have no right to complain about the outcome. Some anarchists, libertarians, and other contrarians take things in the opposite direction. Voting, they say, signals consent to the results and the approval of a bad system. It's a moral crime. If you vote, you have no right to complain about the outcome. Personally, he says, I consider voting neither a civic duty nor a moral crime. If I don't like my choices or the overall system, I'm under no obligation to pretend I do by voting. Now, on the other hand, the system does exist and will continue to exist for the foreseeable future, whether I vote or not. So there's no reason I shouldn't register my preferences as to how it operates and who runs it if I feel like doing that. He says, I'm not going to try to convince you to vote, but I am going to try to convince some of you not to vote. If you haven't taken the time to familiarize yourself with the candidates and issues on your ballot, you shouldn't vote. 
If you're familiar with some of the candidates and issues, but not others, you shouldn't vote on those latter candidates and issues. Thomas L. Knapp says voting on things you neither understand nor particularly care about is just a waste of time, effort, and maybe gasoline. And while the chances of your vote being the deciding vote in any given election are about as good as your chances of winning a billion-plus-dollar lottery drawing, why take the risk of causing the wrong result by voting from a position of ignorance? He says, if you're not sure you should vote, you probably shouldn't. I think that's a pretty good middle road, actually. I I probably lean more towards the idea of, well, you know, uh, if you're giving consent, you're giving validation or legitimacy to the system that is trying very hard to enslave you when you vote. And I understand, you know, not all candidates are the same. Some people still maintain, well, there's a difference between Republicans and the Democrats. But really, when you get to the upper echelons of power, when you get to where the real power centers are, That difference isn't as great as we like to pretend that it is, Washington, D.C. being a prime example of this. For instance, how many high-level Republicans have had the courage to call out the federal government, and particularly the Department of Justice, on its, its January 6th melodrama? I don't know if you're aware of this. I was just reading earlier this morning that uh, there's, a, there's a bombshell that's dropping right now in that uh, the DOJ, at the 11th hour, two years, they have held people for trial. Now they're getting ready to put uh, some of the Oath Keepers on trial here in, in the next week, starting next week, I should say. And now at the 11th hour, the DOJ admits, oh yeah, by the way, yeah, the, uh, the federal government had informants within the uh, the Oath Keepers organization who were sitting there trying to to direct and to encourage people to do things that would be indictable. Well, what a stunning admission. This is, I mean, this is quite the bombshell, and it it casts a lot of doubt, again, on that, that whole narrative of, well, this was an insurrection, and people were trying to overthrow the government and prevent the peaceful transition of power. I've had my suspicions for a long time that, uh, you know, while there were clearly some people that were misbehaving and acting out in ways that I think were criminal, the vast majority of people who showed up there at the Capitol, the vast majority of people who were there to support Donald Trump in Washington, D.C., were not there to overthrow the government. They were there to call attention to a very squirrely election that apparently we are not allowed to question. And the people who initiated the break-in at the Capitol, the people who really instigated that, boy, they sure moved with precision and economy of motion as if they were very well trained. By the way, Revolver News probably has some of the best reporting on this subject that you're ever going to find. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I talk about my sponsors from time to time. I would encourage you, please visit the links that I provide in my daily show notes. In fact, I'd like you to click on garagedoorproservices.com so you can learn a little bit about the Garage Door Pros. Now, this is especially for my listeners in southwestern Utah, St. George, Cedar City, also Mesquite, Nevada, Colorado City, Arizona. This is a local company that installs services and repairs garage doors, doors made in America. And here's the kicker. They offer quick response much faster lead than other companies can give you, and truly outstanding service. In fact, if you don't believe me, I would encourage you to go to their website, read the customer reviews. That's garagedoorproservices.com. 
All right, let's progress forward in our journey for light and truth. One of, uh, one of my biggest complaints about politics is the intense tribal mindset that seems to come along with it. I've got a great article here from Randall G. Holcomb. I picked this one up off the uh, Institute, American Institute for Economic Research, or AIER.org, website. I believe it was originally published from the Independent Institute. And Randall Holcomb says, Humans have always lived and worked in groups and instinctively seek to cooperate with others in their group while viewing people in other groups with hostility. That's part of human nature, right? People in the same tribe work together for their common good. People in other tribes are potential predators or potential prey. Now, those tribal instincts have stuck with us in modern times and often in socially harmful ways. Tribal instincts are the basis for racism and lay the foundations for nationalism. Modern societies have developed institutions to channel tribalism in non-destructive ways like organized sports. Rather than going to war with those of another tribe, we play games against them, giving us the satisfaction of battling another tribe while minimizing the death and destruction that accompanies other types of battles. Electropolitics also plays on tribal instincts. He says, we choose sides and it is us against them. How sides are chosen is, at least partly, up to the politicians who are up for election. Now, the 2016 presidential election offers a good example. <laughs> Excuse me. A good example. Remember, it's a contest in a contest that pits us against them. Hillary Clinton called Trump supporters a basket of deplorables, clearly placing Trump supporters in the them category. Meanwhile, Trump was critical of Mexicans, Chinese, and illegal immigrants. Now, one interesting aspect of these appeals to tribal instincts is that Clinton put many potential voters, the Trump supporters, in the them category. Trump put foreigners who don't vote in the them category. He included all Americans as the part of the us group. So as Trump framed it, we Americans who could vote in the election were part of his group. Whereas Clinton framed it, some Americans were in her tribe, but others were not. Trump's framing pitted Americans against foreigners. All voters were in his us group. Clinton's framing pitted some voters against others. Now we're seeing Clinton's brand of tribalism play out again as President Biden has labeled MAGA Republicans as semi-fascists. Why would a politician want to alienate such a large proportion of potential voters? Would it make more sense to try to unite voters against a common enemy rather than branding perhaps half of potential voters as the enemy? The more inclusive message would seem to make more sense if the object of tribal rhetoric is to win over undecided voters or convince potential voters to switch to the speaker's side. Trump's strategy says that we Americans who vote are all in this together against a common enemy, foreigners who do not vote. Now, Randall Holcomb says, however, not that many voters are genuinely undecided and even fewer who have already chosen a side are going to defect to the other side. Electoral politics is more about turnout. Voter turnout tends to run about 50% in midterm elections. So the road to victory must be fueled by getting our supporters to show up and vote while discouraging their supporters from voting. A charitable way to view the tribal strategies of Clinton and Biden is that casting their opponents in an undesirable light will encourage Clinton and Biden supporters to turn out to vote against the deplorables and the fascists. They're acting to motivate their base. But he says, still, that seems like a poor strategy because it has the potential to motivate their opponent's base at least as much as their own. Suppose you're one of those people being called deplorable and fascist. In that case, you might be motivated to strike out at those who are making those accusations. 
Okay, just as a quick aside, I didn't vote for Trump in 2016. That was just a matter of conscience for me. I could not be persuaded that, you know, he he was he was the better choice than Hillary, but he still wasn't a good enough choice to earn my vote. In 2020, I did vote for Trump. And it was precisely because the people who were calling me deplorable and and who are now calling me a fascist represented such a credible threat to me that I absolutely ended up voting against them more so than simply voting for Trump. See, I'd rather be known for what I stand for than simply what I'm against, but that was one of those instances where, you know, to to me, the threat uh, seemed to justify casting a vote, you know, for the lesser of two evils. And by the way, in the time since Biden has taken office, I have seen nothing that convinces me that my vote was miscast or otherwise wasted. In fact, I... I'm, I'm almost uh, sorry that I that I wasn't a supporter earlier. I don't think he's the political savior, but I do believe that uh, he posed much less of a threat than the current uh, regime. All right, back to Randall Holcomb's article. He says, my guess is that by deliberately trying to alienate a large share of voters, the Clinton-Biden's tribal strategy costs more votes than it gains because it motivates the them voters more than the us voters. Trump's approach of trying to include all Americans in the US group against foreigners seems like better electoral politics. Trump did attack Clinton, calling her lying Hillary, but he didn't attack Clinton's supporters. That's a good point. President Biden was his party's choice in the presidential election of 2020, partly because he was viewed as a more moderate Democrat who could appeal to a broader spectrum of voters. After he was elected, he presented himself as a president who wanted to unite America. You do remember that, right? But it appears he's now chosen a different political strategy, a strategy that may have kept Clinton out of the White House rather than his old strategy that may have put him in the White House. Randall Holcomb says, humans still have those tribal instincts and politicians can play them differently by defining who they include in their us group and who they define as them. Now, their strategies are fully intentional. President Biden's characterization of MAGA Republicans as semi-fascists was fully intended to play on the tribal instincts of his base, but likely will have a bigger impact on the tribal instincts of those outside of his base. You don't have to be a MAGA Republican to be offended that the president would label a large portion of Americans as semi-fascists. Again, this is from Randall G. Holcomb, a piece I picked up off of American Institute for Economic Research's website. I've got a link to it in my show notes. Strongly recommend you take a look at this. So as much as I tell you, I'm a political agnostic. I really don't believe that we're going to find political solutions. We're going to vote our way out of the mess that we found ourselves in. And if you're asking, what's the alternative, Brian? Huh? We take up guns and we go fight in the streets? I mean, it's, at its absolute worst, yes, that's, that's what will happen. We will balkanize and, and there will be, you know, there will be fighting in the streets. Not a desirable outcome and not something that I would advocate for. I advocate for something that's a little easier to implement, although it's so simple that a lot of people really have trouble accepting that, well, could that work? And that's simply withdrawing your consent. And the wisdom that informs us to withdraw consent rather than simply, you know, run for the castle with pitchforks and torches is a 500-year-old essay by a Frenchman named Etienne Delaboitie. The uh, essay is called The Discourse on Involuntary on, on Voluntary Servitude. 
And it's how people choose to put themselves in bondage by continuing to support a despot. But he says instead of, you know, attacking the despot out there on the battlefield and going to war with his armies, there's something much simpler we can do, and that is simply turn our backs, withdraw our support, make that despot and his or her system of, uh, of rule irrelevant. Sometimes that can mean building parallel structures, parallel economies. Homeschooling, by the way, is a great example of how this is done. If you are taking steps in your life right now to build some of those parallels, my friend, you're on the right path. Now, I'm not telling you to ignore politics entirely, but I'm telling you there are more productive ways to use that time and effort. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. A shout out here to lifesavingfood.com. Wow, we've only got about a week left in September, but it is National Preparedness Month. And I thought you would like to know there is a 30% off deal going on right now through lifesavingfood.com. Click on the link I provide in my show notes and you can check it out for yourself. Probably be glad you did because times are getting complicated. All right, where to go next? How about we talk a little bit about uh, the interview that President Biden did this uh, past weekend on 60 Minutes? I don't know if you saw this. I didn't watch the whole interview. I've seen a lot of different excerpts pop up on Twitter and so forth. But one of the comments that he made as he's wandering, you know, carefully having one of those walking conversations with Scott Pelley from CBS News was he was asked, is the pandemic over? And the president said, yes, I believe the pandemic is over. But we still have some challenges with COVID. And I have to admit, when I heard that, I was like, whoa, I can't believe he actually said that. He did state the pandemic is over. Now, isn't it interesting that since then, in fact, for much of this week, the White House and others have been trying to walk that back. Well, now, you know, the president may be the president, but the White House denies that the uh, pandemic is over. Well, uh, who's president? Is it Joe Biden or is it his handlers? See, that's becoming a pretty fair question right now. I got an article here from Ryan McMacken from the Mises Institute. The pandemic is over, but the feds aren't giving up their emergency powers. Ryan McMacken says, on 60 Minutes last Sunday, President Biden declared the pandemic is over, but it quickly added, we still have a problem with COVID. We're still doing a lot of work on it. Biden then reiterated, but the pandemic is over. And his evidence was the fact that no one's wearing masks. Everyone seems to be in pretty good shape, and so I think it's changing, and I think this is a perfect example of it. Now, Ryan McMacken says, Biden's prevaricating position that it's over, but we still have a problem, is exactly what we've come to expect from the regime when it comes to COVID. After all, the Biden administration still enthusiastically supports the Pentagon vaccine mandates, and in the federal courts, the administration continues to push for a variety of federal mandates including air travel, mask mandates, and various federal education programs such as Head Start. The feds still want forced vaccines for federal contractors. Travel to the United States still requires proof of vaccination. The federal government is even expected to announce at least one additional extension of the current emergency. In other words, the administration certainly isn't acting like the pandemic is over in terms of actual policy. Now, Ryan McMacken says, nevertheless, 
Biden, in his public comments, is contradicting the experts on which the administration relied so heavily to fan the flames of the regime's beloved COVID panic. As Fortune's Aaron Prater showed this week, the usual guardians of COVID COVID science are hardly in agreement with Biden that the pandemic is over. Michael Osterholm at the Center for Infectious Disease Research says, it's too soon to tell if the pandemic is over. Biden's comments were not well thought through. Really, that's according to Osterholm. Meanwhile, George's Benjamin of the American Public Health Association says the president clearly misspoke and we really need to be clear that the pandemic is not over. Now, Ryan McMacken says, look, at least these people are being consistent. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's own statistics, more than 300 people have died of COVID per day in recent weeks. And community transmission is still listed as high in most of the U.S. Daily new cases are still where they were through much of 2020 and 2021. Isn't that interesting? Just as a quick aside here. In other words, there's still as much COVID going on right now as there was in 2020 and 2021. Where is all the fearful reporting, right? Where's that blood red counter of COVID fatalities, you know, that CNN had up there for days and months and weeks on end? It's just the focus has shifted. Isn't that strange? I mean, look, this is not to pretend that there's no virus out there or there's no sickness. There is. But we've gained perspective. This is why people aren't wearing masks. And this is why people are, are for the most part, you know, going back to life as normal. I see some people wearing masks and, you know, that's, if that's what makes them feel safer, let them do it. Just don't force me to. I don't know if I mentioned this, but uh, when, I, when I had to go into the ER earlier this week, first thing when I showed up, I was handed a mask. Actually, they gave me that at the uh, Instacare clinic. I took the mask and just stuck it in my pocket. I was not going to put on a mask. I had enough to deal with it at, at that moment. And frankly, I got through the whole ordeal, which was about three and a half, four hours, without ever having to put that mask on my face. In fact, I kept it as a, as a memento. I threw away my hospital bracelet, but I kept my mask because it reminded me that even in this uh, desperate time when COVID is still a pandemic to some people, I'm not going to budge on that particular line. So, back to the article. Ryan McMacken says, It's not hard to see why the administration has suddenly forgotten about the alleged science that policymakers repeatedly flogged to demand support for countless state and federal mandates for forced vaccines, lockdowns, and business closures. The regime's current ruling coalition, the Democratic Party, is afraid of losing big time in the November elections. So it also wants to tell people how wonderful everything is. If there were not an election two months from now, he says it's a safe bet we'd be hearing all about how terrible the pandemic is. But there is an election. And that means Biden has to be out there talking about how the pandemic is no big deal. Everyone should stop complaining about inflation and that things are fine. Now, winning elections, after all, <clears throat> requires at least somewhat aligning the party's positions with existing public opinion in the lead up to Election Day. Ryan McMacken says that's exactly what Biden is doing. There aren't enough committed freak-out-about-COVID ideologues left to assure the party of victory. Only in certain left-leaning strongholds does a sizable portion of the voting public actually regard the pandemic as a priority. Yes, one will continue to encounter many true believers in the Bay Area, New York City, or in Martha's Vineyard. And naturally, this attitude prevails in countless university towns across the nation where amazingly, university pencil pushers are still enforcing vaccine mandates. 
Pandemic panic also remains popular among corporate elites whose primary concern in 2022 is apparently to be loyal soldiers for the regime. Now, in most of the real world, however, which includes at least half of the American voting public, people have long since moved beyond this. Virtually no one is wearing masks anymore, isolating in case of possible exposure or lining up to get the next booster. Now, that sort of thing may seem normal in California or at a city hall in Chicago, but few ordinary people are listening to the usual harangues offered up by health bureaucrats anymore. More importantly, he says it's extremely unlikely that were Biden to go on television and announce that the pandemic is really ne- really bad now, guys, that many people would listen. So we're now seeing the pandemic end exactly the way we expected it to. According to the government-funded hive of health researchers, the pandemic is still not over, and they're still saying, not so fast. But in practice, the pandemic is over because people believe it's over. Back in 2020, Ryan McMacken says, we here at Mises.org published a column called Pandemics Are Over When the Public Decides They're Over, exploring this phenomenon of the disconnect between the official pandemic and the pandemic in practice. And the conclusion was exactly what the title suggests. If the public is finished going along with the regime's pandemic measures, the pandemic is functionally over. As the New York Times explained in May of 2020, pandemics typically have two types of ending. The medical, which occurs when the incidence and death rates plummet, and the social, when the epidemic of fear about the disease wanes. When people ask, when will this end? They're asking about the social ending, says Dr. Jeremy Green, a historian of medicine at Johns Hopkins. In other words, an end can occur not because the disease has been vanquished, but because people grow tired of panic mode and learn to live with the disease. Now, Ryan McMacken says not even the medical question or medical end of a pandemic is as simple as it seems. Given that COVID is unlikely to disappear, the question remains whether infections and deaths are at stable rates and whether herd immunity has been reached. Either would suggest an end to the pandemic, but but it's not straightforward. So short of disease fully disappearing, there is no clear definition of when a pandemic is gone. But still... The true believers in lockdowns and forced vaccines will likely continue to debate under what conditions people can be permitted to live their lives without intervention from health experts. Moreover, he says, as we've seen, the regime isn't relinquishing its newfound powers. Yes, people are bored with the current emergency and they're not listening anymore, but that doesn't mean they can't be hoodwinked by the next emergency. Whether the crisis is one of racism or lack of abortions or the climate. This is why the administration will keep suing in federal court to keep its prerogatives to impose vaccine mandates, border closures, mask mandates, and more. So the regime may have admitted that the people aren't listening about COVID at the moment, but that doesn't mean the regime will willingly give up one ounce of power. That is, expect the current president, and all future presidents too, to insist that he can still rule by decree with impunity whenever there is an emergency. When exactly is there an emergency? Well, whenever federal politicians decide that there is one. Our job is to assume that they're lying. That's some pretty solid advice. Again, that's from Ryan McMacken, senior editor at the Mises Institute. I've got a link in the show notes if you want to check it out for yourself. This one actually might be worth uh, sharing with some friends, too. Okay, got to take a quick break. We'll be back just the other side of these messages. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out here to HSLAmmo.com, one of my great sponsors. They are located in St. George, Utah, but their product is available wherever fine, high-quality, new, and remanufactured ammunition is sold. But especially for my listeners in southern Utah, you better jump on this because you'll find some uh, very high-quality ammo, very competitive prices. And, and I'll just add to this, Spencer Worthington is still one of the finest human beings that I know. He's the founder and president of HSL Ammo and probably one of the greatest friends that uh, the the shooting sports industry, the firearms community, and supporters of the Second Amendment can find. That's hslammo.com. All right, couple things to touch on here in the closing moments of the show. Uh, there is a, This is a pretty heavy article. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail here, but I'll tell you, nobody has sounded the alarm more clearly and backed it up with facts, not just opinion, than John Whitehead from the Rutherford Institute. Now, John Whitehead and his wife, Nisha, have an article that was, uh, this was just published on the ronpaulinstitute.org website. Masters of Deceit, the government's propaganda of fear, mind control, and brain warfare. Does it not feel like we've been on the receiving end of, I guess what we would call psychic warfare or mental warfare for a while? I mean, I don't know about you, but there are times where I feel like, you know what, it takes conscious effort just to make sure that I'm actually still operating in reality and, and not losing my mind. Just because some of the crazy stuff that we see. Now, this is not to even mention all the other stuff that's going on around us that insist, hey, I know that uh, her voice is deeper than mine and, and uh, she has an Adam's apple and big hairy knuckles, but uh, this person in a dress claiming to be a woman really is a woman. See, you know, if you're rooted in reality, you'd go, well, no, that's a guy dressed like a woman who, you know, is, is having some kind of uh, gender dysmorphic, uh, you know, body image problem. But we're, we're not supposed to do that. That's considered outside the boundaries of what's acceptable. You're supposed to just accept it and embrace it. Nope, the reality is a trans woman is a woman. I mean, if, if that were the case, we wouldn't have to put the qualifier trans woman in front of uh, one of those, right? Right? Okay. Back to John Whitehead and Nisha Whitehead's article. They point out here that the U.S. government has become a master of deceit. And it's all documented, too. This is a government that lies, cheats, steals, spies, kills, maims, enslaves, breaks the laws, overreaches its, overreaches its authority, rather, and abuses its power at almost every turn, treats its citizens like faceless statistics and economic units to be bought, sold, bartered, traded, and tracked, and wages wars for profit, jails its own people for profit, and has no qualms about spreading its reign of terror abroad. And with every passing day, it becomes painfully clear that this is not a government that can be trusted with your life, your loved ones, your livelihood, or your freedoms. And he gives a great history on psychological warfare and, and you know, MK Ultra as well as other things, mind control, how to shift the public's opinion, and so forth. The bottom line is this. For years now, the powers that be, those politicians and bureaucrats who think like tyrants and act like petty dictators regardless of what party they belong to, have attempted to brainwash us into thinking we have no rights. 
to think for ourselves, to make decisions about our health, to protect our homes and families and businesses, to act in our best interests, to demand accountability and transparency from government, or generally operate as if we're in control of our own lives. But he says the government is wrong. We have every right. And you know why? Because as the Declaration of Independence states, we are endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights to life, liberty, property, and the pursuit of happiness that no government can take away from us. And he says it's time we start reminding the government that we, the people, are the ones in charge. I actually saw a quote yesterday from Rand Paul that, uh, that I thought summed this up. And I'm going to have to paraphrase it because I don't have it right in front of me. But essentially, Rand Paul was reminding us that the system of government that the founders gave us was not a system that uh, showed great trust in government. Oh, yes, government is the great blessing that we can give the people that will uh, improve their lives in every way. No, they actually viewed government as a necessary evil that had to be carefully watched, carefully controlled, and limited at every possible opportunity, lest it get out of control, kind of like a fire. When you think about it in those terms, that would mean that their primary objective in the kind of government that they gave us under the U.S. Constitution was for personal liberty. That was the primary purpose. That's the reason they separated from England. That's the reason they fought for their independence. Not so that they could create some big leviathan that would ruthlessly control every single aspect of our lives. Kind of interesting when you put it in those terms. By the way, I think he's right. It's, you know, it's, it's all about, you know, government is... It can be there as a great, when it's, when it's good government, it's guaranteeing your natural rights. When it's bad government, it's trying to tell you every little thing you have to do in your life that has nothing to do with maintaining your freedom, maintaining your liberty. If only more people understood this. So, in interest of helping more people understand it, let me share a little excerpt here from Kent McManigal's latest article, Liberty Trumps Rule of the Majority. Kent McManigal says, according to a recent poll, a majority of New Mexico voters approve of stiffer anti-gun legislation. He says this is why the U.S. Constitution exists and why America was established as a republic, not a democracy, to protect individual rights from majority opinion. It places human rights beyond the reach of politics. You don't get to vote on liberty. Now, whether or not this works in practice could be the subject for another conversation, but invariably, the anti-gun faction claims that in spite of all the legislation they've imposed, the crime rate remains high. Well, the truth is, the crime rate is pushed higher by those laws. Bad people will continue to break laws no matter how harsh the consequences. Part of being a bad guy is the belief that you'll get away with it, and a lack of consideration of consequences. This is why harsher legislation and nastier penalties will always hurt good people more than they will discourage criminals. Ken McManigal says democracy is nothing but mob rule. Might through superior numbers makes right. It's nothing to celebrate or fetishize. Those who place faith in democracy are telling you they don't understand what rights are, nor do they understand the dangers of letting the mob decide which rights to respect and which ones to ignore. It doesn't matter if what everyone wants if everyone wants to violate someone else's rights. Imagine slavery somehow makes a comeback, or at least because something most people are willing to consider again. It's obviously illegal, prisons accepted, to enslave people. What if the people demand to vote on the matter? Could an election make slavery okay? What if the vote was 99% in favor of reinstituting slavery? 
I mean, this is a fair question. If you don't have the right to do something to someone, winning a majority vote on the issue doesn't create this right. You have no right to tell anyone they aren't allowed to have some sort of gun or otherwise violate their natural rights or enslave them. No legislation, election, or majority opinion can change this. You might still have the power to do it anyway, just as governments have had the power, or rather had the power to prop up slavery throughout most of human history. But that doesn't make it right. Try it, and the abolitionists will rise again with their new version of underground railroads. The bad people will call them the criminals, as they always do when good people defy bad government rules. I love how he ends that, though. He says, I can live with that. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great uh, great attitude of defiance. And I guess it's the kind of thing that we need to understand. is you know, Just because it's the law doesn't mean that it's good or that it's moral. Case in point, you know, you think of Anne Frank, the people who were sheltering her and her family from the Nazis, they were criminals. Everything they did in keeping Anne Frank and her family out of the clutches of the authorities was illegal. The informant who dropped a dime on them, the officers who came and collected them and took them off to concentration camps where everybody but Anne's father died, yeah, they were the law-abiding citizens. So tell me again, which was on the right side of uh, right and wrong? I know what my answer would be. One final thought, since, since I'm ending on with, with that kind of image. If you are struggling to know how to live in times where, you know, we, we clearly have government targeting roughly half the voting population for believing in the wrong political party, or at least not believing in their political party, you can see that we've got a pretty big challenge ahead of us. And that's, that is part and parcel of a fourth-turning scenario. I strongly encourage, get a hold of the book, The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom. Corey Ten Boom also lived in Nazi-occupied, uh, I believe, uh, Holland. And she and her family were taken and put in concentration camps by the Nazis. She has some extremely powerful advice of what it's like to live under the absolute worst conditions imaginable, and I think in particular what she has to share is how in those terrible conditions, the worst that anybody could imagine, she found that God's love transcended and extended deeper than any darkness that the Third Reich could impose on her or the people around her. That's why when she was freed from the camps, she became a missionary and went out and spent her life teaching people where the real light can be found. This is The Brian Hyde Show.